First Samuel chapter 5, hopefully we'll get 5 and 6, and this evening's title, and the title is supposed to be for you too, <laughs> it uh, helps me to know what direction this is going in, and the title is Discovery and Recovery. It may not sound very exciting, but it hints at what's going on. I struggled with these, this, these two chapters a little bit saying to the Lord, what is the purpose of all this? Why mess with the Philistines over the ark? Wasn't there a better way to do this? I wasn't content with the commentators that I referenced, not to speak badly of them, poorly of them. Uh, But uh, then I think the Lord did give me something concerning this. I was pretty excited uh, for myself as a Christian. And uh, this discovery about Yahweh and the recovery of the ark. We're going to learn something, hopefully, about God and what, how he does things under these circumstances. And, of course, we're going to see him recover the ark that the Jews lost on the battlefield to the Philistines. And so before he returns the ark of the covenant to Israel, which meant should have meant everything to a righteous Jew, which was reduced to just a sort of a mascot emblem for the unrighteous Jew... For the other peoples of the land, the ark was the emblem of the other guy's God, and they had their own emblems. Of course, it would be Dagon in this chapter, the God of the Philistines. And so God's going to return the ark to his, to his people, but there were was, there was some things that they had to uh, face, facts they had to discover, and he's going to lay them out, and I... I believe that it's for all of us, not just for the Jews at that time. Now, again, just a little review. The ancient people supposed that when you captured the enemy's emblems or idols of their gods, emblems of their gods' idols, that that meant your god was stronger than their god. Their faith was weaker than your faith. Your religion was better than their religion, and that meant everything. We've experienced some of this when we do battles for the truth with unbelievers. So Yahweh is going to take this opportunity to capture the ark back and to teach that though you may defeat his people on the battlefield, you've not defeated him. And that's the big part of the the, the discovery. We can lose on the battlefield, but God does not lose. And the Bible lays this out again and again, story after story, parable, fact, in so many ways. And then we grow up to be Christians, and when we reach a certain age, our faith begins to get challenged seriously, and it doesn't stop until we go home to the Lord. So yes, his own people defeated on the battlefield by the enemies of God and his people. And it did not mean that God was defeated. They didn't know this at the time. And this is for anyone who would receive it to this day in the church. What is, how relevant is this to the church? We don't have the Ark of the Covenant to lose. Well, the discovery for us is simply this, that we Christians are to win through, oftentimes, through apparent defeat. That is what the cross of Christ teaches us. He appeared to have been defeated on the cross. The Ark is lost to believers. The Christ was lost to Rome and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. And Thomas, again, so upset at that, he just wanted no more. He just wanted to go away and not be anymore. 
only to discover that Christ was not defeated. Paul writes it this way in the Colossian letter, a letter that he is addressing the heresies creeping into the church in Colossae. And he says about Christ on the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. He appeared to be defeated on the cross, but he was not. And this is now the third day they sit on the road to Emmaus. And we were hoping he would deliver us. And he did from sin. That's a a discovery. When you become a Christian, you discover this. And then you get to act it out in your own life. The recovery is the return of the ark in this evening's story. By Yahweh, not by those who lost it. Another important discovery. That recovery of the essential things is by the hand of God and not by the swords of men. It reminds me of a General MacArthur quote. Whoever said that the pen is mightier than the sword never faced automatic weapons. And I, I like that because it forces us to rethink Proverbs. Proverbs are very good when they apply. And when they don't apply, they, they're blunt. Well, the... The Philistines and the Jews would discover that Yahweh rules through this whole event. The Philistines would look back and say, we beat them on the battlefield. But what happened with that whole ark thing? Yahweh is what happened. The Jews would recover the ark only because Yahweh rules. So Nebuchadnezzar learned this lesson. He discovered that recovery was all God's work. Daniel chapter 32 We read that the messenger came to Nebuchadnezzar after he was warned by Daniel to stop puffing himself up and thinking he was so special. And then, of course, he goes out and he says, this is the great Babylon that I have built. And at that moment, the messenger came and they, well, the getting ahead of the story of getting to the recovery, but before then, the messenger gave him this warning. He said, and they shall drive you from men and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. Field, They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Well, that's the lesson tonight. That's the discovery of the Jews. He gives it to whoever, whoever he chooses until you know the Most High rules. Well, what about us? When we're faced with all sorts of junk in our life that we didn't ask for, We didn't ask to be born. We have to face it anyway. We're woven into each other. Can't get away from it. The same thing applies. Until we learn that the most high rules in the kingdom of men. And that's what we are discovering when we hear the Lord teach us to pray. And say, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And we get to live this over and over again. I would be content with one time. But I'd like to go back to Daniel chapter 4. That experience Nebuchadnezzar had. I read verse 32, but now I'm going to jump to 35. And this is his recovery. And once he recovers, he, 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 he goes into this speech. He says, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me, pardon me, restored to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. Because he learned it firsthand. He discovered that. And now he's recovered from this. And the lesson is there for us. As Christians, we win through apparent defeat, routinely. But one day, the kingdom won't be restored to us. The kingdom will be open to us, and we will be here no more. A kingdom that will never end. And we believe this by faith. And Paul said, here's the thing. I press toward the goal for the prize, for the upward call in God, in Christ Jesus. In this nasty world, there are discoveries that we make about life that we would rather not make. But there is one thing that is constant, and that is the glory of God. And it is worth it, and that's why we worship him. Because we say it's worth it. And the thought of saying, I wish I was never born. Which many of the saints in the scripture said. I have two of them in mind, Job and Jeremiah. Now in heaven they're saying, thank you Lord, I was born. God knows how to make it all come together. So now with that background, understanding that God has a lesson to teach about this ark. And who is in control to whoever will receive it that it is still applicable to New Testament believers to this day. We look at verse 1. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Now, for seven months, they they have this ark in their custody. Not yet seven months at the time of the events that are unfolding before us, but it will be a seven-month trip. We'll get that from chapter 6 and verse 1. This mention of Ebenezer, of course, was named by Samuel 20 years later. We covered this last session. Samuel's writing this. It's a reminder to the people that though they lost the Ark of the Covenant on the battlefield 20 years earlier, they have it back now, and the name Ebenezer is retained as proof of God is the champion. Battles without God end in humiliating defeat, and battles with him end in victory. And that is the story of of Samuel's participation 20 years later in the battle over the Philistines in the same area. And when people fail on the battlefield because of their spiritual disobedience, God becomes his own champion. Now, how much more for the church, a Christian believer that loves the Lord albeit is disobedient from time to time, fails often, and still Christ is our champion. And he rules in heaven, and he rules on earth, and anywhere else in his creation. Verse 2, when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. So they bring it into this pagan temple, and they set it next to this statue of the God that they worship, And the idea is it's a trophy, the Ark of the Covenant. 
It has been defeated by Dagon, and it will be there subservient to Dagon. And Satan will try to hit us with things like this. He won't use statues, he'll use events. And he'll make us think that we are defeated. That there's no power to our faith. And so the Philistines now saw Yahweh as a lesser god. And this making him a trophy is going to get them in very big trouble. In First Chronicles, we'll read about the defeat of Saul, King Saul. And I'll just read it to you, First Chronicles 10. And they stri- after they killed him there on Mount Gilboa, and they stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. And so... Over 20 years later, there will be another, in fact, 60 years later, almost, there will be another battle with the Philistines, and it will be King Saul who is slain, and they will use uh, his armor as a trophy and his head and all the other gory things that go with it. They will gloat over, but God is not defeated because after Saul was killed, David came to the throne, and David did defeat the Philistines. After this lifetime, for me, will be no more. But right now, time is very important. And, and the important part of time is waiting for God to do whatever it is he's going to do. And that is a skill of a Christian, a skill that we are to learn. And we learn it through just trusting God by faith. Verse 3, And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of Yahweh. So they took Dagon and set it on its place again. This is uh, the beginning of their scourge. Uh, this, uh, they don't see it yet, but it's coming. This is the first miracle, in, uh, outright miracle, in Samuel's book. This uh, treatment of this false god, this Philistine god, who again they thought prevailed in battle. And now this uh, presence of the Ark of the Covenant topples their grotesque rendering of of deity and such images cannot stand in his presence that's one of the many lessons from this Uh, the real revealed truth about god comes in many forms and this is one of them it was again a humiliating defeat and it continues it says so they took dagon and set set it in its place again (laughs) the Samuel doesn't refer to him as in a pronoun. He doesn't say, and he said him, because it's nothing. It's stone, it's whatever's chiseled out of is nothing. It's no, it's no person. It's just a, a lump of nothing. But when men must defend their God, prop them up, the God is not worth defending, is not worth propping up. This is another irreconcilable difference between true Christianity and Islam. Islam has to defend their God. We don't. We can't. How can we defend someone who's omnipotent? We're not omnipotent. It doesn't make any sense. If he is God, he can defend himself. Even even Gideon's father said that about the pagan gods. Well, you know, if he's a god, let him deal with him, you know, protect himself. Uh, Anyway, that's what it means for us to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. We are his witnesses, not defenders. We, We... 
turn the lights on that otherwise would not be on through the preaching of the word, through the living of our life, our testimony. And that is to create a process that uh, slows down corruption, the salt of the earth. When David carried that jughead of Goliath around for three days, he no doubt salted the head to preserve it and to keep it from, of course, rotting under his very fingers or slow it down drastically. Verse 5, And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of Yahweh, the head of Dagon, and both the palms of his hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Well, this happens two consecutive days in a row. The first day they go in and, and he's toppled. The second day they go in and his hands and his head is severed and his, laying, his hands are laying by the, the entranceway, the doorway, the threshold. The fate of every false god is this, to be chopped to pieces. Jonah, in the belly of the fish, prayed out, uh, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. That's the, the unpardonable sin, is to go to your death forsaking the mercy available to you uh, in Christ Jesus. So by turning to idols, of course, one declares that Jesus is not enough. That's what was happening with the Jews. It so infuriated Yahweh. They're bringing home these idols with saying, yeah, we believe you, but you're just not enough. Unfortunately, there are many Christians that treat Jesus Christ the same way. I believe you, but you're not enough. I have to bring in other beliefs to help me get through life. And it says that, hey, I can do better. In life, if I have Yahweh and another God, another belief, if I can add the gods up in my life, insisting that these will improve how I live, contrary to God. So, yeah, idolatry is a big thing. It's still here. It's fashioning things in our head and our heart about God that he has forbidden. And uh, we don't want to do that. He says here in verse 4, before the ark of Yahweh. Again, this is the beginning of their affliction, the beginning of their scourges upon them. Um, Isaiah 45, God speaking through the prophet, I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. In other words, confess that he is God and there is no other. And when he says it shall not return, God says, this, this, I'm not backing down from this. this. This is it. This is final. And so again, the great difference between God's people being defeated and God being defeated, and that is what is taking place here in the temple. Nobody's figured this out yet as this is unfolding in history back then. No one's figured this out. Not yet. The ancients didn't see it this way. But Yahweh will help them all with this understanding. It continues in verse 4. The head of Dagon, both palms of, his, of its hands, were broken off on the threshold. He was violated in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. And they're going to get that part. But the fact that his, uh, his head and his palms are broken off, I mean, he's brainless and he's powerless. There's nothing upstairs and there's nothing he can do. 
He cannot put his hands to anything. That's the, the message behind this. this. The symbolism here. God is exposing Dagon for what he is. Nothing. A useless, a useless as a god. Pretty good as a dust collector. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Dismembered. And uh, pushed flat on his face. In the book of Kings, we read about that wicked Jezebel. And her fate was to be eaten by dogs. It just didn't get any lower than that, as far as a curse being upon you. Second Kings chapter 9, So they went to bury her, and they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. The dogs would have nothing to do with her pathway, <laughs> with nothing, she, nothing to do with what she put her hands to, with nothing that she uh, entered her mind. What did Jezebel do before she died? She painted her face. She, she puts makeup on. She hears that they're here and she looks out, the, you know, the eunuchs, they look out the window and Jehu says, you know, who's with me? Throw her down. So they threw her down. And the horses trampled her and then the dogs did her in. And that is uh, a fate that we warn the wicked. Uh, we say, listen, you're not going to be able to endure the judgment and wrath of God Convert, that times of refreshing may come. Verse 5, therefore, neither the priest of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Well, in deference, superstitious deference, we don't walk over the threshold. Well, where'd they get this from? Uh, how do you, so you found parts of him, you know, humiliated at the threshold, stepping over to somehow what? But that's what superstition is. It's just a fear. There's no basis for it. You can't back it up. It suggests that there's another power in the universe other than God. When a Christian enters into, you know, throwing salt over their shoulder or carrying a rabbit's foot, why would anybody carry a rabbit's foot for luck? It didn't help the rabbit. And so, uh, anyway, uh, coming back to this, Zephaniah, the prophet, he points out that they're still doing this kind of stuff in Israel. Zephaniah 1, verse 9, In the same day I will punish all those who leap over the threshold. All those still playing games of superstition. I'm going to deal with them. Verse 6, But the hand of Yahweh was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and, they, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. So not only the city, but uh, the suburbs around it and the country around it. Speaking of hands, the hand of the Lord. The hands of Dagon were chopped off, but the hand of Yahweh were scourging the people in one of the capital cities of the Philistines. He ravaged them, and that means he destroyed and killed. This was a serious plague. The tumors were swellings. The Greek word is of the Hebrew word, swellings. And the translators have just... So our tumors will work, and you, you can't dispute that. This is a physical judgment on the people. It appears to be only on the men. The particulars of these afflictions are subject to debate, but the essentials are easy to get. God smote them with some sort of physical ailment, and they were dying. And so rather than majoring in the minors, we'll suffice it to say this was, they were in serious trouble. Verse 7, And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of God, the God of Israel, must 
not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us and Dagon our God. So steeped in darkness, conversion was not an option. They just stayed fixed on the emblem. Let's get rid of the ark. Obviously, the Jewish God is stronger now than Dagon. Instead of saying, let's switch to their God and submit, which was the purpose of the Jews, to be the light of the world. That was part of their commission. They really never did enter into it. May that not be so with us. Every Christian should be hoping to share the gospel with someone. And God will make that easier than you could ever make it. And it is face-to-face and it's personal. Uh, the people that, uh, before becoming a pastor, and just in the workplace, uh, in the neighborhood, the people that came to the Lord came because of eye-to-eye contact, because of a relationship, because I was around them. And they had opportunity to ask me questions and observe. And they were not expecting me to be perfect, but they were expecting me to not be a hypocrite. Um, and God always made it easy. And whenever he, there were droughts, there were times where I didn't get to preach to anybody, I knew that I was not to do anything to, to change that. That he would bring them, and he did. You may have another system. Verse 7. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us and Dagon our God. So the suffering brings admission out but it's, uh, that their God is inferior, but not enough to really make a difference. Verse five, uh, verse 8, Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of God, the God of Israel, away. <laughs> So it's like, you know, let's just take him from one Philistine city. Let's just put, give him to the other Philistine. What was wrong with these people? Why don't they say, listen, if we take the ark back to our people in Gath, they're going to be smitten too. How about we send it back to the Jews? Uh, they will get there, but not before a lot suffer. A lot of suffering goes on. Verse 8, therefore, they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines. And they said, what shall we do with the ark of the of the God of Israel, and the answer, let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. Didn't I read that? I did. Well, it's for you that... Verse 9. So it was, after they had carried it away, that the hand of Yahweh was against the city with a very great destruction, and he struck the men of the city, both small and great, with tumors. It broke out on them. Again, there it seems to be restricted to the males. Verse 10, Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. They're still doing it. They sent it to Gath, from Ashkelon, Ashkelon to Gath, now to Ekron. And it's going to be the same. It's escalating. It's getting worse for them. So it was, verse 10, as the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of God, the God of Israel, to us. To kill us and our people. <laughs> I mean, what do you just say to that? Uh, Yahweh does not need an army to fight for him, does he? The Philistines are learning he can do a pretty good job on them without people. Verse 11. 
So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God, the God of Israel, and let it go back to its own place, so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. They are being afflicted. And uh, not learning the lesson with this proverbial hot potato, uh, trying to send away the presence of God to their own people, it's really kind of dumb. I don't know how they could reconcile that. Verse 12, And the men who did not die were stricken with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Incidentally, I have a lot in my notes about what the tumors might be. (laughs) All of it, a lot of heavy-duty reading that you probably need to go through in the early days of pastoring, but not now. And and you'll thank me later, if not now. Well, back to this. With every movement, as I mentioned, it intensifies. Uh, It's just uh, not going to go good. This is over, again, seven-month period. This is drawn out. Verse, now we come to chapter 6. Now the ark of Yahweh was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priest and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of Yahweh? Tell us how we should send it to its place. Well, they're they're sending, um, I don't know, a a tractor mechanic to fix a car. I don't know, the best I can do. (laughs) They got the wrong people. The right idea, but still wrong. Why don't they send to Israel and ask one of uh, their priests to come? Well, we're going to find out. Even Israel's priests weren't up to date on their own law, and they're going to cause a lot of problems for their own people. And so God is showing that everybody's a mess about these things. Israel was not doing what she was supposed to do. And the Philistines, of course, you expect them to be the Philistines. And so this trophy was continuing the war that ended seven months ago. This trophy to them. The Ark of the Covenant was a trophy with horrific losses. Verse 3, they said, If you send away the Ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. Then you will be healed. And it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. So they're in total darkness about this. They're guessing uh, what to do. For them, theological etiquette dictated that there had to be some sacrifice to appease any god. And that's why they're going to, you know, get the, the offerings and the gold involved. You know, gold is valuable to men, so it must be valuable to God. Uh, Incidentally, this disease also likely, with it came the destruction of their crops. And that's why they're going to put the golden rats or mice also in. He said, well, what? that's kind of random. Well, let's look at it. Verse 4. Then they said, what is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? And they answered, five golden tumors, five golden rats, and a partridge in a pear tree. According to the number of, <laughs> of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. 
And so if you're saying, well, what is the significance of the number five? Well, there were five Philistine lords. That's and it tells us right out. That's why they're getting five of these tumors that, uh, again, is the subject of much debate among scholars. But I, the Hebrew is just very simple. You know, just some sort of inflammation going on there. And it was killing people. Uh, the golden rats or mice, as the other translations seem to prefer, the Hebrew word is you know, something like those who gnaw, <laughs> like a mouse gnawing through something. Uh, that might Some believe that, therefore, it was the bubonic plague that is the connection. I think that the crops were affected or something, but it really doesn't matter what we think it was. What matters is what was happening. They were being afflicted. And how they come up with this... Magic is meaningless. None of this does anything for the situation. In fact, it prolongs their relief. So this is the work of witch doctors and shaman, you know, telling the people to do stupid things that don't work. Meantime, valuable time is slipping away. If someone had just said, you know what, let's just put this thing back in Israel, any kind of way we can get it, uh, then that would have expedited their relief. But instead, they're going to take the time to... You know, take go get a craftsman. I guess he sketches it out, has to submit it to the county for approval, and go through all of these steps, and then they come back. And this is how the world does things. And when it comes to God, they abandon reason and they do things that are just part, make the problems worse. In verse five, therefore you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats and rav- that ravage the land. See, there's my belief that it, uh, these are mice or rats, feel rats, some sort of a rodent that's doing harm to the crop. And you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods, and from your land. So they're not sure about this, which is understandable, But evidently, and this is important to the story, they know something of Israel's history, of the Jewish history out of Egypt. And that's not surprising. They may even have had copies of uh, the Jewish scripture. Almost uh, no question they would have had copies of Israel's writings. The cities they conquered, they would have taken things like that. And uh, they had some basic knowledge of... uh, to to model this solution from Israel. Numbers chapter 21. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. And so that may have been their precedence for this. Well, you know, Moses fashioned something and it helped the people. Let's fashion something that's related to us. For Moses, it was serpents. To us, it's these tumors and these rodents. Um, they've upgraded, though. They did do an upgrade from brass to gold. And <laughs> Verse 6. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he did mighty things among them? Did they not let the people go that they might depart? <clears throat> and so again, this exhibits their their knowledge of that Pharaoh bore his own guilt, and that the whole history of the Jews with this event, 
So in life, you say, I, I, I really believe that when we come to the Scripture, we want it to have some application to us. Not every verse is easy to find an application, but so much, so many of them are. And these are because we meet unbelievers who insist on remaining unbelievers in the face of hard facts. And they cling to things that they've made up or picked up somewhere that cannot be, that have no basis in truth. Uh, maybe you come across someone who says, well, I got it off the internet. Yeah, but it, we, I can disprove it. And yet they still cling to it. And uh, so we're, God is saying, listen, people are difficult. When it comes to winning their souls, you're really going to need me. Prayer and dependence on the Lord. Numbers chapter 19, again we read, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring you a red heifer without blemish in which there is no defect and on which a yoke has never come. So they may have modeled even this part about getting the two milk cows, though a heifer has not had cows, uh, they, they, but they modeled the part that she's, they've never pulled a cart. Uh, so I'm just saying that the Philistines likely were referencing their, their religious scholars' Jewish materials to find out how to appease Yahweh instead of just getting that thing out of there. Right? Uh, could you imagine? So you got a bomb in your car and said, well, let's, let's figure out, should we pour milk on it? Or, you know, how about you just run away? Or get away from that thing? Uh, I don't know, maybe you get better ideas. Verse 8. Then take the ark of Yahweh. Well, let, let me pause here. I wouldn't pick a reading on this chapter normally. If you said, if you pick a few chapters out of the Bible that you wouldn't read. These two would be in there. <laughs> but uh, anyway, they're still very instructive. Then take the ark of Yahweh and set it on the cart and put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. Then send it away and let it go. You should have just done that initially. I know I've said that, but it's kind of frustration. It's, it's like a kabuki theater. It's a bunch of guys with masks acting weird. Yeah, I know you had a hard day. You want to get through the sermon, go home, eat, and go to sleep. Not yet. Verse 9. And watch, if it goes up the road to its own territory to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us a great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it's not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. And so they said, you know, they get the ark, uh, the, the chest next to the ark. They put it on a cart. They have these cows, milk cows, taken from their calves. And they're going to pull a cart. They've never done this before, so they're inexperienced. And so they're creating this condition here. And they're saying, well, if it, if it heads to Beth Shemesh, which is Israel's territory in northern part of Judah, uh, then it, it is God that has afflicted us. But if it doesn't, if it just turns around and goes, you know, back to our land, then we're just victims of bad circumstances. And so this is sort of how they are going to deduce what's going on here. Now, Beth Shemesh is a... Uh, an ironic, not ironic, from the line of Aaron, 
Aaronic and a Levitical city at the same time. That's very significant. And that is also another miraculous act of God. There were three Beth Shemesh cities in Israel. One in Nephtali, one in Ishkar, and one in Judah. Well, the one in Judah was a, a city given to the priest and the Levites. Well, the priests were the only ones that could handle the ark according to the law of God. In fact, the Levites, who were supposed, one group, one division of the Levites, were to carry the ark of the God with the poles, the ark of God with the poles, the sons of Kohath. And they both are in this city. The Levites were not to look inside the ark. They weren't to touch it. They weren't even to look at the ark. The priests were supposed to cover it. Well, evidently, that's not the case here. So there have to be some exceptions, or else people would be, be dropping dead looking at the ark. Um, but it is an act of God that he's sending his ark to those who are supposed to be skilled and authorized in handling this uh, chest of the Lord. We know this from Joshua 21, incidentally, with Beth Shemesh is the city of priests and Levites. So verse 10 now, Then the men did so. They took two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. Oh, this would keep the calves from following the mommy cows <laughs> and uh, distracting them. So they, they separate them. It will also cause the cows to... Uh, low for their calves, and we'll get that in a minute. Verse 11, uh, And they set the ark of Yahweh on the cart, and the chest with the gold rats and the images of the tumors. Now, my pastor would like to make a point when he would come to this verse. He would say that the work of the Lord is not to be carried on carts. And carts are made out of boards and big wheels. And it's a very important lesson. It's one that I, I don't think I've ever lost sight of. Church is, the work of the church is not done by church boards and important people. The work of the church is done by the Holy Spirit through those who are appointed by the Holy Spirit to do his work. And they're no more important than anybody else in the church. Though they may be more accountable with things of the church, they are no more important and so that is just a good lesson because, unfortunately, there are many churches that are run by boards and big wheels. You know, church governing boards and people who the other people have deemed to be more important than others. And I think that this is just a good uh, illustration of how it should not be because the ark does not belong on a cart and it's going to cost lives. Verse 12 then the, cow, then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right hand or the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. I'm reading this with a smirk because there's so much humor in here, but I'm just, I'm just going to leave it alone because I'm probably the only one that thinks it's humorous, and you might think it was an attempt at humor. Well, this confirms that Yahweh afflicted the Philistines. It went the road to Beth Shemesh, the lowing in protest of being separated from their calves, again attesting to 
the, the realistic part of the story and the presence of God both at the same time. The fact that they were never yoked and seemed to be cooperating with each other is another indication that this is remarkable. Verse 13, now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. So here we are again at uh, this uh, city of priests and Levites. They're working in the fields. It's the wheat harvest that makes it sometime in around May. The fact that it is harvested also, and they're working in the fields also means there's many witnesses to see this happening. The Jews know they lost their, the Ark of the Covenant. Life went on. And they uh, and lifted up their eyes, saw the ark to come, and they rejoiced to see it. Understandably, verse fourteen. Then the ark came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and stood there. A large stone was there, so they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to Yahweh. Well, that big rock is mentioned evidently because it provides an ideal altar to butcher to sacrifice to butchered animals and the cows you know they didn't sign on for this <laughs> but they just get there and they stop and that is because God ordered them to stop so they split the wood uh, the cart some say you know the burnt offering should have been a, a, a male uh, animal not the uh, females, and that may have been in violation of the law. Just a thought to, to throw out there, but there are liberties that they are taking because they really don't have much of a choice. Verse 15, the Levites took down the ark of Yahweh and the chest that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh, offered burnt offerings, and made sacrifices the same day to Yahweh. And so these are Levites and priests. They know about the offerings. They're authorized to give them. Uh, Shiloh has probably been destroyed when they lost the ark, and it is no longer going to be part of the the Jewish center of worship. Uh, The ark will end up in Kirjath jerim at the end of the chapter, where it will be until David uh, takes it to Jerusalem. It will be there a very long time. Uh, verse 16, so when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to Yahweh, one for Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, Ekron, verse 18, and the golden rats. <laughs> I don't know why the new King James opted to go with rats, and the old goes with mice and some of the other translations. I would have preferred mice. They certainly are more welcome than rats. But uh, anyway, you got a rat, you got a problem. Uh, golden, golden rats, verse 18. According to the number of the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, the both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel, on which they set the ark of Yahweh, which stone remains to this day, in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, which is not relevant to us, but was relevant to them. Uh, because in those days, there were those that would have a hard time being a believer also. That's why there was so much idolatry. And so when the writers put together scripture, they put things in there like that to encourage them to believe. Verse 19, 
Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented because Yahweh had struck the people with a great slaughter. So they went beyond what they were supposed to. They as Levites and priests, they were allowed to do the sacrifices. They were allowed to take the ark off the cart. Uh, this won't be the last time the Jews make this kind of mistake. With Uzzah in the days of David and bringing it to Jerusalem, they will put it on a cart. And uh, Uzzah will be struck dead. I believe Uzzah will be in heaven, but he was instantly dealt with for that sin because it was a clear instruction of those who were to handle the ark. Um, here, then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked in. Curiosity killed the Levites. Curiosity, as a serial killer, he killed a cat after this. He struck 50,070 men. Well, this uh, scholars argue that this number can't be right. Not enough people in such a village as Beth Shemesh. This would have wiped out all the men, or all, maybe even all the people. Uh, but Men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself, incidentally. Before we get into a little bit of this, men reject the Bible because the Bible contradicts them, what they want to do. So these numerical discrepancies that pop up from time to time in, in the historical books, mostly, uh, they're really not something to be concerned with. Uh, numerical errors do not alter any doctrinal teaching at all. And there is certainly a logical explanation for them is that the Jewish right numbers are just really unclear when you write them down. But Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown is a collection of com Bible commentators. And it's pretty good from time to time. And he has a nice explanation. He says... Uh, Really, it should be 50 out of 100 being a total of 1,400 instead of God decimating uh, the entire village. According to Josephus, it was 70 out of 1,400. If you want to play with the numbers, have at it, but it's really not something to be concerned with. Or some others just simply take the number as it is. They know he struck 50,000 because it says it was a great slaughter. And these things we have to pause on from time to time because nowadays everybody's got to study Bible and you may look it up, and you may read what the commentator says, and many times they're right, and sometimes there are other commentators that have, have gotten it better. Don't be shocked by that. Uh, just uh, build your library, <laughs> expand your library, and spend all day trying to chase these things down. Verse 20, And the men of Bethshemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Yahweh God? And to whom shall it go up from us? Uh, this is your ark. Why would you want to get rid of it? This is what your calling is. But they had moved so far away from their identity, they had become just farmers. And they just lived for themselves now. And the fact that they were Levites and, and priests was not primary anymore. What was primary is this great slaughter came because of them. On a similar note, Paul trying to get, remember, the church, the church was modeled after the synagogues. And when the Gentiles were coming into the church, they brought with them all sorts of craziness. 
The synagogues had their own problems, but to bring in the Gentile problems was compounded everything. And Paul really worked so hard to stabilize early Christianity. You read the book of Acts, you see how the church was born. so exciting. But then after that, the church began to have to fight for her life to this day. And that's why we have the precepts known as the epistles. And Paul writes to Timothy and he says this is an important thing. And it's found in the Old Testament. Almost everything he taught was already spoken. Same with Jesus. Jesus just put into fresh language so many lessons he had already given in the Old, Old Testament. So Ecclesiastes 5 matches 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.15. Ecclesiastes 5 and 1 Timothy 3.15. He says, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. Do you know a lot of Christians don't know how they're supposed to behave in church? They think the church is supposed to conform. It's just it's a problem. When you finally get a church that is strong enough uh, to, to live this, then you've really made an accomplishment. But to get to this place is a lot of work, a lot of pain and heartache. But this is uh, how you, that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. Well, I should just take Ecclesiastes 5 briefly. That would be, you know, if we could have a sponsor like flashing back of us we can <laughs> walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give sacrifice of fools for they do not know what they do uh, the evil that they do do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God for God is in heaven and you are on earth therefore let your words be few for a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. And so they're addressing in the, the presence of the Lord, along with the assembly. The Solomon in Ecclesiastes says, watch yourself. And that's what Paul says. We have to learn these things. And here in Beth Shemesh, they were supposed to know how to conduct themselves. They were supposed to know what their business was. But it had failed in the, in the, in the land. How is it going to come back? How is any of this going to be recovered? God's going to raise up someone. His name is Samuel. And Samuel will come rushing to the front and he will begin to fix it. And then Saul will mess everything up. Saul will be so busy chasing one harmless person that he forgets about all of Israel's enemies who end up killing him. And then David really gets the people into worshiping the Lord like never before in her history. Verse 21. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of kirjath jerim saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of Yahweh, come down and take it up with you. So they did not want the responsibility. They passed it off. And again, Kirjath jerim remains its resting place until David brings it in to Jerusalem. And how does David bring this ark in? 
Speaking about recovery, the first time, you know, Uzzah dies, and David was devastated. And the ark was kept elsewhere, and in the man's house who, to whom it belonged was greatly blessed. And David heard that, and he said, why are you going to bring this ark back? And he brings it, and he dances with all of his might. He's dancing before the ark. And everybody is saying, watching him, this is the king, and this is how you worship. This is how you serve, and this is how you express passion. And it doesn't read to be getting out of control. And there's one naysayer that is pointed out by the Holy Spirit, and that would be Michelle. The king made such a fool of himself, dancing before the maidens. It was not her place to say that. Why wasn't she leading the women like Miriam? Miriam grabbed a tambourine and said, I will celebrate. You know, she's dancing. The, the, the army of the Egyptians wiped out dead on the shore, and she grabs a tambourine. And so they kept naming the girls Mary. Mary is a derivative of Miriam. But uh, these, uh, the excitement of, of these things, we, we're not supposed to lose them. So we read this story, we can see these desperate village people coming and saying, we want the ark out of here. And we're supposed to read that and say, I hope I would not have been one of them. And if anything, I would have wanted to be dancing along with David, though not in front of the ark, but behind it. If the king is doing it, then I could do it. Zeal for your house has consumed me. What is zeal? Well, we lose this word. It's morale. It's to be motivated. When your morale is knocked down, which the enemy spends a lot of time doing, trying to do, you get less done. Do you know, and i got a little time so I can go on these little, you know, <laughs> trails. I hope, I, hope, I hope you're enjoying them. In the Second World War, when Germany blitzed France, it just blew right past her defenses that she spent so much time getting ready. The German troops were on a form of methamphetamine. These guys were fighting for days without sleep. And the, the point, that, the, the thing that comes out of this is many of those troops, they didn't want another war. They had been in the first one. They lost it. Their morale was low. So the Nazis juiced them up. And they were all highly motivated. At, they're like seven times more motivated. And, and the, the French could not believe how fast they were blitzed. The Blitzkrieg, lightning war. Well, God's people have to look at something like that and say, well, you know, I, we understand the motivation. We don't need the methamphetamine. We don't need the outside influence. We want the Spirit of God. And so if you've been a Christian for a long time, okay, so you younger Christians, you've really not been on the battlefield yet, most of you. From time to time, you come across young people, they have suffered a lot. But you really haven't been tested. Your faith is going to be tested. It's a promise. And you are supposed to come through it. And then after time, your faith gets tested so much that your morale gets low, and then you just may be going through the steps. Well, it's good that you keep going through the, through the motions, but it's not enough. You can't stay there. You've got to keep the morale high. You've got to have zeal. And when you feel it slipping, you've got to fight for it. Force yourself to sing. Force yourself to read. You've got to force yourself. Because it ain't going to come naturally. 
And don't be surprised at these things. You get old, you get lonely, you get tired, whatever it is. You still have to apply yourself and be zealous for the things of God. In the face of apparent defeat, you know that you are not defeated. You know that Christ is saying, it counts. When I see you suffering, going in circles, feeling like I have forsaken you, and yet you still get into the fight, I see that. And I am going to not forget it for all eternity. So it does count. When David, King David, had gone off to battle in Ziklag, and he left behind his, the women and children of, well, of his men that were running all from Saul for years. While they were away, their people were taken. I believe it was Midianites. Amalekites. It was Amalekites. Yeah, one of them. <laughs> That's not the important part. The important part is when David came back and him and his men found everything gone. At first his men talked about killing him. The Bible tells us David strengthened himself in the Lord. Instead of dealing with the men, he went to the Lord. He got strong. And they went and they, they found an Amalekite in the field and they interrogated him and they found uh, the, those who had stole their women and children and their goods. And we read this in 1 Samuel chapter 30. And nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. So it's about discovering that God rules, his sovereignty, and that he recovers. You get to the New Testament, Paul says to the early believers, he says, it's, it's, this says this about Paul, that he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. Comes with it. That's what he's telling them. You're a Christian now. You believe in truth. You don't believe in truth because it's going to bring you a better life. You believe in truth because it's true. Joel had written earlier, So I restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the gnawing locusts, the chewing locusts. I restore it. We say by faith, amen. And then Jesus says this to us. You know, in this world, you're going to have a lot of trouble. But keep your motivation up. Because I've overcome the world. In the world, you will have much tribulation, but be of good courage, because I have overcome the world. The only way you can get that is by faith. For without faith, it's impossible to please God and to really be effective. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this lesson, and may we uh, apply those things that your Spirit has highlighted for us. And may you get us all home safely tonight. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.